Welcome to today's episode of Kicking Off with me, John Mills. In today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Carl Paradis from the University of Ulster. Carl's research focuses on group cohesion, group dynamics, teamwork, and more recently, mental health. So, Dr. Carl Paradis, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Doing all right. Uh, transitioning like everybody and uh, <laughs> working remotely, working from home, but uh, otherwise I'm healthy and uh, can't complain. Obviously, I, I know you reasonably well, um, but perhaps not everybody does. So uh, I always start the show by asking uh, my guests to just tell us a little bit about themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And John, thank you very much indeed for the invitation. Uh, it's, a, it's a nice change of pace to, uh, to take some time out and, and have a chat about, about sports psychology. So yeah, myself, uh, I'm originally from Canada. Uh, I was born and raised in, uh, in Toronto, Canada. I lived there pretty much all my life with some uh, you know, brief uh, stops uh, around Ontario, uh, attending university and uh, kind of going through my, my academic training. So I moved around a little bit. Uh, for those of you familiar with Canada, uh, mostly in, in southwestern Ontario, uh, I did my undergrad actually in northern Ontario at Laurentian University, uh, where I first got into sports psychology. Actually, uh, as they were, and I think they still are the only Canadian institution that has an undergraduate focused program in sports psychology. So that kind of got me set on this path, uh, kind of leading me to where I am today. From there, I went to the University of Windsor to do a master's. Uh, after which I went to the University of Western Ontario to do a PhD. Um, you know, like most people in our field, uh, grew up playing sports uh, competitively. Um, you know, avid sports fan as well, and uh, and then uh, ended up uh, getting an opportunity to uh, come to the UK or, or come to Northern Ireland and and take up a position at Ulster, which is where I am now. So that tells us a bit about your um, your research, like background how you got into sports psychology uh in terms of as a as a researcher uh, i wonder if you could take it back a, a step further and talk about so what really drove you to pick sports psychology as a as a major in, in the first place yeah i think uh a couple of things you know growing up i was uh, uh i played competitive sport i was a competitive athlete uh in a couple of sports uh primarily uh, a sport of golf and a sport of curling and so, you know, for those of you might not be as familiar with curling, it's a, it's another uh, ice sport that we that we play in Canada. Uh, aside from ice hockey, uh, you might have seen it on the Olympics as well. Uh, but yeah, I was quite involved uh, in those sports. Uh, I played a little bit of, uh, of football or what we would call soccer uh, and uh, and baseball as well growing up. And I was okay at those sports, but I, I, I was I was probably better skilled at at, at curling and, and and golf, which is kind of what I 
specialized in after my sampling years. And uh, yeah, I just kind of started to think about some of the psychological processes uh, that I was experiencing playing sport and uh, some of the challenges that I faced as an athlete um, around my mental game. Uh, so that was kind of my initial interest. And then I was also really interested in um, in groups and teams, which is an area of research I had gotten into as well because of curling being uh, a four-person team and such a very uh, small and close-knit group. really noticed a lot of um, group dynamics issues were quick to arise when uh, if things weren't going well, and, and that also kind of piqued my interest as well. So in terms of curling, so you talked about the group dynamics of curling. Now, you've lived in the UK for a while now, so you know how little we know about curling. Um, so tell me more. Tell me a little bit more about the, the group dynamics of curling, because from the outside, uh, from the very, very limited exposure I've had watching winter sports and things like that every now and again, it, like how, how, like what is the group dynamic in in curling like then? So, like. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, there's a high level of interdependence with the curling team. So it's, it's a, as I mentioned, it's a four-person team, and uh, it, you're really in constant communication, uh, or you should be in constant communication anyway. When you know, at least the teams that are performing at a very high level. So there, there's constant um, things that you know the players are looking for. So they're looking for uh, to try to get a handle of ice conditions, which is speed and how the ice is reacting and, and line and weight and uh, communicating that up and down the lineup. So there's four positions in curling. The skip is kind of the, kind of the, the team captain. They're responsible for strategy. They're responsible for calling the game. And, and so they will, uh, they will indicate what shots they want their team to throw. And, uh, and, and they sort of execute the strategy on how they want to go about to play. So like any sport, you can play a very offensive strategy, a very defensive strategy, and that's sort of dictated in the shots that are played. Um, and then up and down the lineup, the third uh, is sort of the, uh, the vice captain, if you will. And, and they really are the liaison between uh, what we call the front end and the back end. And then the front end are the lead and the second who, who throw the, the first few shots of the end. And, and they're the ones who do all the sweeping. So you see all the sweeping and the brushing that occurs as well, perhaps on TV. And, and they're the ones who are primarily responsible for that. Okay. And what, what position did you play? Uh, I played all over. Uh, my, my, I think my best position was probably uh, vice or third. The um, so throwing the the third uh, set of shots uh, in the end, sort of a, in a advice and supporting role uh, to the skip. Uh, I was really good at strategy, uh, but also uh, quite um, you know I think effective communicator. Uh, I like skipping. I like calling the game, but I, I you know part of the mental things that I found was I had. I had trouble throwing the last shot. So the skip has to throw the last shots at the end. And really that's, that can be the make or break. It's where you make the shot to score or you make the shot. And, and if you miss, you know, the outcome can be catastrophic. Whereas if you miss down the line, you know, it's not necessarily um, going to determine how you're going to do or how you're going to score. Yeah. So like for football fans and I know you're a football fan or a soccer fan, it's kind of like, uh, it's like the fifth penalty, right? This is, that's it. That's the final moment. That's, it's all or nothing at that, that point. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. And it, you either convert it and, and win or, or you miss it and lose and it's all on your back and there's no hiding. That's interesting. We've talked about curling quite a lot there. Maybe, maybe not everybody's quite as interested as I am. So we'll move over. <laughs> Certainly the UK audience. Um, so, so what sports teams do you follow now? Is because we've I've already mentioned the fact that um, 
that you're a football fan? Yes. Well, you know, to, to be fair, there, there's a few clubs that I do support. Uh, yeah. So I do, I do follow West Ham, uh, which I know your uh, is your your first love uh, of football. Uh, your your love hate relationship, as we've <laughs> we've talked about it. Absolutely. But yeah, no, West Ham have been uh, have been fun to follow. But I, I do also. Um, you know, not being from from the UK, I, I, I don't necessarily have any uh, geographical allegiances uh, to teams. Um, but I do. Uh, you know, there, there are certain teams that I that I've sort of have a soft spot for, or, or have sort of uh, followed over the years. And one of them being uh, Sheffield United. And uh, of course, they were having such a, a brilliant season in in the European places uh, at that time of when the season was sort of halted. So, you know, it's been it's been loads of fun. A little bit more, a little bit more fun, perhaps, than following West Ham at this point. Yeah, which is a rarity, to be fair, because Sheffield United are one of the clubs that actually we we usually it is better to be a West Ham supporter than a than a Sheffield United fan. But uh, so so why why West Ham? Why Sheffield United? How how did you uh, develop a, a fondness for these these teams? Yeah, so as I mentioned, being being Canadian, uh, you know, I used to follow follow football, and and, and I obviously followed our, our very struggling national team. But uh, some some Canadians, you know, some of the pioneer Canadians that came over to play in uh, in Europe, um, you know, played at some of these clubs, and uh, so our probably our best goalkeeper of all time uh, for the Canadian national team was Craig Forrest, and he had a he had a good mm-hmm. stint uh, at West Ham. Sure. Uh, he, yeah, he, he up until this season, he held the unfortunate uh, record of, of, of being the goalkeeper that uh, lost nine nil to Man United. But and of course, that record was tied this year when Leicester put nine past Southampton. So he was he was quite happy to at least share that now. <laughs> <laughs> nice. He's now no longer the the only the only goalkeeper in the Premier League to shift that many. Yeah. All right, that's cool. That's uh, that's interesting. And and you said you played as a kid, right? So uh, what what position did you play? Yeah, I, actually, I, I was a, I was a goalkeeper um, okay. uh, as well. So is this, uh, is this the Craig Forrest link? Is it? That was the Craig Forrest. Uh, yeah, so I was a big, obviously, a big fan of him. And uh, you know, when we uh, one of Canada's only sort of major trophies, if you can call it that, was uh, winning the uh, the CONCACAF Gold Cup in 2000. And, and, and Craig Forrest really stood on his head in that tournament and, um, you know, mm-hmm. and, and took Canada all the way through. So, of course, that, you know, so they essentially beat, um, uh, beat Mexico on the way to to the final, uh, beat Colombia in the final. We were invited to that tournament, so uh, and, that, and that got them invited to the Confederations Cup the following year as well. So that was kind of a, a really golden age of, of for the Canadian national team, uh, if we can call it that, because we've only qualified for the one World Cup in 1986. Um, lost okay. a few intercontinental playoffs uh, as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's been uh, it's been <laughs> tough times on, on the international stage for Canada. So cer- certainly following the domestic players was a lot more uh, rewarding uh okay so let's let's change let's change tack let's talk about um so you, what what particularly led you down that path so it was it was just it was like when were you when were you really competing at the height of your powers in curling and um some of these other sports is it is it more of a youth athlete or were you um are you combining your studies with being an athlete at the same time uh, yeah, I would say it was more of a youth athlete, and I think my I, I transitioned into focusing into my uh, my studies and professional career, if you will, um, sort of sort of post that, I guess height. 
if you, if you can even call it, even, <laughs> I didn't necessarily reach the highest of heights, but, uh, and perhaps that's why I, I, I transitioned more into, into the academics, but no, I think, uh, I, I, I think everyone comes and, and they kind of have to make a decision on, you know, on pursuit, you know, and we look at, you know, transitions and, you know, comes these critical moments of, uh, okay, are we, are, are we still doing this? Can we, do we still want to invest the time, um, and, and effort and dedication that's required, um, or, you know, do, do we, do we sort of shift focus? And so when we came, when I came to this sort of the time to go to university, uh, I, I kind of made that shift of focus. I, I always maintained, you know, a, a playing, uh, a playing competitively, but certainly to a much lesser degree. Um, it certainly wasn't the, the primary focus. The primary focus sort of shifted onto the, uh, the academic and professional side. And I, I but I definitely maintained sport uh, within my life. And, and another way I did that was actually getting into coaching. And so when I transitioned sort of from playing competitively to, to coaching competitively and, and, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a level three competition development coach in curling as well. And, and, and really that's where I found my, my most fulfillment and satisfaction was on the coaching side, which, which I came to later. So did you always, um, did, were you always interested in, uh, the, like the psychology of coaching and, and sports psychology more broadly? Was that always the end goal or were you more interested in physiology, biomechanics, those kinds of broader areas to start with? No, I, I would definitely say it was definitely more on the social science, uh, side of things. I, 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 I never, certainly in Canada, our, uh, our sports psychology training is housed and comes within, uh, you know, our, our kinesiology departments or sports science departments. And so, you know, we would be, we would have exposure and we would take courses in biomechanics and physiology at the undergraduate level, but those certainly were not my favorite courses. <laughs> I, uh, I, I was definitely more gravitated towards yeah. the, uh, the social science side, the psychology, the management, uh, sociology, even, uh, now, if you will, uh, of sport. And so, yeah, looking at coaching and, and leadership and, and, uh, group dynamics, uh, it was always sort of my main interest from, from the get go. So talk to us about your PhD then. So, uh, so what did you do for your PhD? Yeah, so a PhD, I, I was at the University of Western Ontario, and uh, I ended up working with, uh, very, very fortunate to have the opportunity to work with you know, one of the pioneers of our field, and um, certainly in Canada, and I, I, would, I would certainly say internationally as well, as Dr. Bert Karen. And uh, so Bert's area of research was, mm -hmm, was group dynamics and, uh, and really the led the way in uh, his program of work in, in cohesion. And so I had, had the opportunity to work with, with Bird. And, and before going to work with Bird, I actually worked with, you know, his, um, his former PhD students as, you know, with Mark Eyes uh, and, and Todd Lougheed, uh, who, who supervised my undergraduate and master's theses, uh, respectively. And so I had already been in the area and, and studying group dynamics and, and, and looking at cohesion and, and leadership and, and roles uh, in, in sports. And so was, was was well versed in the area, and and the opportunity came up to work with Bert, and and and, and thankfully it, it worked out. And uh, so I, I, I went into Bert, and as you do, kind of have a chat, say you know what, what do you want to do for a PhD, and you know we kind of bounce ideas back, and and, and he actually posed the idea to me, saying, well, you know obviously I've you know I've done cohesion, I, I feel like you know almost you know I've exhausted all of the cohesion uh, outlets at the moment. But, you know, one thing I've, I've never gotten into and I always kind of thought was looking at the opposite of cohesion, which would be uh, conflict. 
and, and looking at intergroup conflict. And I thought, oh, actually, that would be really interesting. I, I, I would be very interested in doing that. And, and so Burr said, you know, I think why don't we develop a measure for conflict? And this will be, a, a, you know, it's a, it's a very nice, tidy PhD. It's a kind of a nice laid out program of work, plan of study. And it gives you an opportunity to, to develop a measure and then use it going forward and as you develop your own program of work. So I thought that sounded like a good idea. And I said, sure, I'm in. Let's do it. And so, uh, yeah, essentially, I, I did scale questionnaire and scale development. Um, and, and we developed a measure for intergroup conflict. So how has that measure been used? Um, like, uh, like have coaches and sports teams picked it up? Have you had any kind of like feedback from anybody in terms of, um, like how, how it's been adopted within the field? Yeah. So we've done some initial, some initial work, um, with some of my colleagues in Canada and something just obviously as, as you do with the measure validating and seeing if it's, seeing if it's any good and, and initial, uh, our, our initial data looks like it, it, it's okay. It, 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 it's holding up. It's working out. Um, it, it's showing, uh, what it should show, what, what we think it should show. Um, it's, we did some work looking at its relationship to cohesion, uh, satisfaction, uh, pizza, uh, passion, uh, positional competition. And, it, and it's important. And, and when we're seeing, uh, you know, it's, it's expected relationships, but, but it's also being able to decipher, uh, one area of research that we're really interested in is this positional competition, which I've also uh, co-authored with my, uh, my colleague, Sebastian Herrenberg, which is his PhD. And he developed a measure in competition. And, uh, we were saying is, is, is competition, could that lead to conflict or there's also research to suggest that it, that could actually lead to cohesion. And, and, and we found that it mm. was able to decipher, it didn't necessarily competition and conflict. We are, are establishing its conceptual differences. And, uh, so, so that was something that we found quite interesting and we were happy that it, that it was able to, to demonstrate that. And how much, how much are you still doing work in that area now? Cause we'll come on to the, the, some of the more recent stuff, but, um, yes. before we move over, are you, are you still working actively in this area? Or? Yes. Yeah. So we, we still have some projects that are, uh, that are ongoing or really we have data that just needs, needs to be written up or is in the process of being written up. Uh, uh, so yes, uh, it's certainly, uh, my, my original interest, my first love, if you will. Um, so yeah, I, I do keep, uh, yep. keep a hand in that pot for sure. And, uh, hopefully we'll have some, uh, some outputs forthcoming from that as well. I always enjoy reading your papers, so I'll uh, I'll keep an eye out for those when they when they come out. Um, so I kind of alluded to the fact that you've you've pivoted slightly uh, in terms of post PhD, uh, uh, especially since moving over to the UK. Um, so so what what's your more recent research uh, particularly interested in? Yeah, so I, essentially it, it stems or it's based in, in my interest in, in social environments, uh, but it's sort of looking at. Uh, the influence of the social environments and its impact on um, on, men on mental health and well-being, and and particularly in, in, in sports social environments. So it still has that. Uh, it's underpinned by my my interest and knowledge in, in groups and uh, and how groups uh, sort of function. But looking at that group environment uh, and what does sport physical activity engagement mean for uh, the mental health and well-being? And so we know the, the benefits of, of physical activity and that from uh, on mental health and, and mood and, and affect. But really, what about the not not the sport itself, but the environment that the sport takes place in is sort of what we're trying to, to get after. Okay, so so it's not a complete it's not a complete pivot then. Uh, it's uh, it's a uh, a slight 
sidestep really if you're thinking about the environment and and more about how the environment influences mental health and well-being rather than focusing specifically on i don't know individuals within the environment per se um yeah so i I suppose we're taking it a step further so we were interested in the group itself and now we're looking at broader outcomes of 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 group involvement and uh you know bringing in our uh, sort of a new area of interest in, in mental health which certainly is uh is certainly uh, risen uh, and expanded in its uh, population, uh, sorry, popularity, and uh, research has been being done recently by a lot of great colleagues. Mm. Yeah, sure. So you've obviously moved over to the University of Ulster, um, and you're part of a research group that's focusing in this area, right? Or is there, is there a centre on mental it, health, or what was what's it called? Yeah, no, I, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's uh, the Institute of Mental Health Sciences uh, at Ulster University. So essentially, what this institute when it was created and what set out to do is, is it was supposed to be a cross faculty institute, um, and w- which it's. Uh, and we have uh, six members from across our faculty of, of life and health sciences. And so within the life and health sciences, there's a school of sport, which I'm situated in. Uh, there's school of psychology. There's uh, biomedical sciences. Uh, there's nursing. Uh, there's geography and environmental sciences. And I'm missing one. I think pharmacy. And uh, so it's a cross-faculty institute with, with members from representation from each of those schools mm-hmm. and so we come and look at mental health from from different perspectives or from a multidisciplinary uh, or interdisciplinary approach mm. and so obviously i'm coming at it from looking at it from sport and exercise and physical activity others are looking at it in uh, uh vulnerable populations medical populations uh, etc so it's kind of uh looking at this from a, a more uh, macro perspective and seeing where our areas of expertise and our understanding of, of, of mental health can sort of inform each other's work. Mm, this is um, this is quite a broad question, but uh, like, what what's your take on the state of research around um, sport and mental health? Yeah, I think it's just it's uh, it's accelerated at a really rapid rate, and I think you know there was you know you look back even five years ago. There really wasn't much much done or much focus on on mental health as an outcome or mental health specifically, and I think you know recent changes in, in society and, and recent uh, things that we it's come more to the forefront, and and you know we see you know mental health awareness being raised and uh, certainly in Canada we have uh, an initiative called Bell Let's Talk, which is a, a sponsored by Bell, which is a telecom company in Canada, but essentially it's sort of to raise awareness so we sort of see these initiatives taking place and there's lots of examples of these and, and so research is following suit and, and looking at at sport has seemed to be a, a, the logical next step to look at these things like i said we know there's benefits uh from participating in sport and exercise and physical activity but there's also can be uh drawbacks and 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 negative uh effects as well so trying to understand both the positive and negative sides of mental health but i think that's one of the biggest challenges right now is is mental health has become a bit of a catch-all term Mm. and so when when someone says oh i research mental health in sport again what what that can mean a lot of different things Mm. and so i think what we need is a little bit more conceptual clarity um or maybe even just different language when we say mental health and sport what is it that we actually mean and what is it that we're actually measuring yeah. are we measuring you know positive mental health are we measure or are we measuring negative mental health is it, is it on the spectrum is it a combination of both mm. so i think we just need to sort of as a field you know 
be a little bit more conceptually clear when we're entering in this line of research, uh, as opposed to using it as a sort of a catch-all. Because I think if you you, you do a search now, you're going to get you know you get anything from well-being and, and mood and, and satisfaction to you know anxiety, depression, suicide, right? And so these are you know very opposite ends of the spectrum and, and, and very different things that we're looking at. What's your intuition around? the um like do you think sports and i know that's a very broad term so let's let's talk team sports because that's something we're both interested in like do you think generally they they're good or bad for your mental health is there is there such a can you make such a distinction or is it too there are there too many um factors that, that go into the environment for example yeah i think I, 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 you know, cop out. I think it's relative. I really do. I think it's it's dependent on, the, on each individual. Kind of has their own experience, and uh, I, I don't think it can just be all or nothing. I think it, it's probably a combination of both. I think there's aspects that are very good, and I think there are aspects that that could probably be better. Uh, I think, it, but it also would probably depends on the individual as well. Um, and so there's lots of different. You know, lots of research, you know, looking at uh, things like resilience now and, and dealing with adversity and, and dealing with challenges. And we know, you know, sport is not going to come without its challenges, and, but it's really you know, how, how do individuals, how are they equipped to react to those challenges or deal with those adversities? Yeah. But we also know there's there's broader problems within sporting cultures as well, and, and certain sports have are, are trying to to make change uh, around you know historical practices that we know um, you know are not helpful or, or or counterproductive, and we see recent cases like this. Uh, you know, gymnastics is one that comes to mind. So so there's also situational or or subcultures within different sports that that could also lead down to it. So I think yeah, it's, it's definitely can't really paint it all with the same brush either good or bad it's, it's a question i often ask my undergraduate students just because it gets them thinking um thinking more critically about about sport uh as being often especially sports undergrad students they often have a a, a pretty positive view of sport and their, their own sporting experience um but we often fail to consider the survivors that they're obviously survivors right there are plenty of kids out there that didn't have such a positive experience so what what would you say um what would you say the main takeaway message from your research so far has been yeah i think i think actually kind of what you were saying is uh is i think one of the takeaways is to remember to think critically or to look at all aspects of the sporting experience i think that was one of the other interesting things from my phd was you know we we tend to view a sport is good and we tend to you know a lot of the criticism of the of the sports like research literature is that it's very on the positive end of sport so all the good outcomes that sport looks at and 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 until really more recently we did we tended not to look at any potential maladaptive outcomes and so you know some of my work uh, certainly around conflict uh, i think was good to start a look into okay what are some of the negative experiences that are happening here uh and you know in conflict as we define it um you know we believe it to be an, uh, an inherently unpleasant experience at least uh you know when you're in conflict with somebody nobody tends to want to be in conflict there's negative emotions involved so uh there's disagreements uh, there could be, you know, sabotage, interference, behaviors going on. So obviously, that's an unpleasant experience. Now, that's not to say that positive outcomes can't come from that, and and sort of clearing the air and, and and resolving issues that need to be resolved. But certainly, that experience in itself, that nature of of conflict episode, I think would be uh, would be unpleasant. And that's you know, going looking at the broader sporting 
experience, I think that's one aspect. Uh, you know, in some of the other work I've done in, in passion and looking at uh, the maladaptive outcomes of, of, of obsessive passion uh, in, in sport engagement. Uh, as well. So I think, yeah, it's one of the takeaways is just looking at the, the broader sport experience. And, you know, we're all, we all love sport. We're all, you know, we're all sport fans. And we, we've all been, I think, benefactors of, of what sports given us in terms of opportunity, uh, and certainly of, of a career. Um, but it's not to not to negate or downplay the fact that, you know, there's still other things that uh, we need to consider and, and bring attention to to try to make it even better. I wonder how we could frame that in such a way that that it's a message that that coaches and athletes can understand. Have you have you had these conversations with coaches and athletes in the past? Have you tried to explain um, like the importance of trying to take the the, the the approach that you're adopting? Like how how has it been received? And uh, like how, how do you try to present this kind of information to coaches? Yeah, well, I think in coaches, I, I think it comes down to the messaging or the way that they deliver their messages to the athletes, right? So there's, and, and even myself as a coach, and I've often have to reflect and sometimes think about the ways that I communicate or deliver a message to an athlete to to make sure that it, it, it's a, it gets to them, it's effective, but it's also, you know, done in a way that can be, um, you know, facilitative. And uh, so I try to make coaches aware, you know, and sometimes we, we, we're not even aware of this ourselves and, and, you know, coaches can tend to be autocratic and direct and, and, and they tend not to think about, you know, the mode of delivery, if you will, and how that might imp- impact their athlete uh, or, if they, or if they framed it or said it in a different way, how that could be perceived or how the athlete might gravitate towards it quicker and, and actually be more efficient uh, and effective for getting the athlete to do what the coach wants. So I try to uh, kind of frame it in that way when I when I when I talk about it with coaches, and then, and then certainly in that with athletes, you know, tr- trying to again look at things from from perspective and and uh, you know consider consider broader perspectives. Consider that you know if if a coach is giving feedback that they're maybe they're not taking well to that, you know, it not, it's not necessarily a, a personal issue. Um, you know, if, if you believe it's a pretty personal issue, then it's probably good to have a conversation with them. But to, you know, to remember that obviously taking things with a grain of salt that within the sport context, you know, we're the focus mm-hmm. really is about, you know, performance and development and, and, and training and instruction. So remembering to take it from that perspective as well. So trying to get both parties to, you know, take a step back um, and, and almost take that bird's eye view as, as which can be difficult when we're sort of in that situation ourselves yeah sure absolutely okay let's take a quick break and then after the break we'll come back and uh, play a quick game and I've got a couple more questions and then we'll wrap up joining us in today's episode i hope you're enjoying it so far i just want to take a quick moment to briefly mention some of the ways that you can get in contact so the most common way is via twitter you can contact me on at jp mills phd uh, you can also email the show at uh, kicking off at 
johnpmills.co.uk. If you're enjoying the show, it would be great if you could leave a review on uh, Apple Podcasts, formerly iTunes, uh, as that helps people to find the show. And if you've got any feedback or comments or ideas for guests or content, please do let me know, um, ideally via Twitter, as I probably check that way more than I should. All right, let's get back to the show. So welcome back after the break. Um, so Kyle, uh, I asked all of my guests to present three facts about themselves, of which only two are true, and then I have to try to guess which one is the lie. Um, so hopefully you're prepared for this and uh, you've got some some good facts about yourself. Uh, so over to you. What, what are your three fun facts? <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm a scratch golfer. Um, an international curler, and I play ice hockey. Oh, scratch golfer, international curler, and uh, you play ice hockey. So you've already mentioned the fact that you play golf, but you not, didn't talk about the level, but you did kind of allude to the fact that you're a reasonable golfer. You've also talked about curling, but you said that you didn't necessarily, you weren't necessarily playing to that higher standard, but... Uh, and then there's ice hockey. Oh, it seems obvious that it's going to be two, but I'm going to, I think I know a little bit about you, so I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to go for three in the full assumption that I'm already wrong. So which, which one is the, the, uh, the false, the lie? Uh, the, yeah, the lies I play ice hockey. I don't play ice hockey. Yeah. Uh, kind of the rare, the rare Canadian that never really played ice hockey. Uh, that, that was not very fair because I, we've previously chatted about the fact that, um, or is it is it Northern Ireland? I'm just trying to recruit you currently. Is that right? It's actually, the, uh, the the it's it's the Irish team. Yeah, so uh, curling is an all Ireland uh, venture. So uh, it would be the Irish team. Yeah. So I've I've uh, I've, I've technically played unofficial international, but uh, but still for the, for them uh, already. So hopefully after I live here for for two years, I can I. I can play internationally for Ireland officially. <laughs> so you're a ringer. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. I mean, well, they would have to qualify first, so that that would be quite an accomplishment if if that occurred. But yeah, that would be that would be the pinnacle, certainly. But certainly, uh, world championships would be uh, would be in the would be in the realm. Uh, yeah, European championships. Yeah. And what what happens if you play Canada? Are you going to uh, be <laughs> flinging the uh, what are they called? Like. What, what, stones or something yeah, like that stones or rocks yeah yeah rocks yeah you're going to be flinging them here there and everywhere if you're playing canada no no <laughs> I, I, if we if we play canada i'm uh i would be uh I, i'm competitive so no i would be i'd be able to beat them and you know canada's obviously ranked canada's ranked number one in the world so uh let's be honest i, I probably 
would never have gotten an opportunity to play for Canada. So uh, it certainly would be uh, it, it would be a, it would be a, a thrill, if a lot of fun, if we ever got to that opportunity to play to play against Canada. I certainly would be I'd be up for that one. So how how like I have lots of questions. Um, like it, 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 does any Canadian moving to Ireland or Northern Ireland is there somebody instantly that's like if they got like, if they got uh, some kind of link to to immigration saying well okay he's canadian let's just get him over for a trial or how did you get recruited for the irish curling team <laughs> um well to be fair i i i sort of i i you know we, we seek out the the curling community I, I suppose if you will so you know their ireland is interesting because there is actually no uh, physical ice facility on, on the island of Ireland, which is a, which is kind of a problem for development. <laughs> so uh, the the Irish Curling Association um, primarily is uh, is is based uh, of, of Irish people of Irish heritage or people that were that were are Irish nationals, but but tend to now live uh, yeah. in the rest of the UK, primarily in Scotland, where there's okay. a lot more curling facilities, and, and so. Um, they, they, they host a, a sort of a, a slate of events every, every year. Um, so I've, I've gone down to Scotland and England a couple times this year and, and played in, in some of these events. But, uh, but yeah, okay. so the, the, the mission of, of, of this curling association, though, was to get a permanent curling facility in Ireland, which I'm also kind of involved with now, trying to, uh, trying to make some headway there. Yeah, it seems fair. We we took Owen Hargreaves, right? And- yeah, you, you took Owen from us. You broke our hearts. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've, we've given you back in return. To the, <laughs> that seems like a fair swap. We'll <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure the Canadians will see it that way. <laughs> okay, uh, we, we are definitely gone off track there. So uh, let's let's bring this back. Um, so uh, so in terms of your research, um, so what kind of I often say paper to researchers, but it doesn't necessarily have to be paper. Sometimes it's a product or an app or something like that people have produced. Um, But what kind of output are you most proud of from your research so far? Oh, that's a a good question. Um, Yeah, it's hard to say. I don't know if I look back and say I'm proud. I I, I suppose, uh, you know, my PhD, the work stemming from my PhD uh, with Bert, um, certainly it's sentimental for for a number of reasons. You know, I am proud of the work, but I'm, you know, obviously... um, you know, for those who don't know, you know, uh, Bert did pass away shortly after I completed my PhD, and and so I I was his last uh, his last PhD student, which I was going to be anyway, but uh, certainly didn't expect uh, didn't expect that to happen so quickly. So that was sort of a you know last um, you know publication and 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 work with him, um, and 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 so yeah, so certainly sentimentally, and but also you know proud of that work there. Uh, would be you know, the, the confident work that we talked about earlier. So it's, uh, it's tricky. Obviously, most people, I would imagine, uh, obviously have the support of their their primary mentor um, during that transitionary period into becoming an early career researcher and all that kind of stuff. So how have you how have you dealt with that situation? Have you have you kind of filled the gap in some way if it's even possible but was obviously a massive figure so yeah, maybe filled the gaps absolutely. probably not doing it justice but you, you know what i mean yeah, you know it, it definitely it definitely was tough and uh you know i don't it, it's hard to say you know 
scientifically if I was actually at a disadvantage or not. I certainly, I think at times felt I was, uh, you know, because like you said, most people have that, that first reference letter that you have when you're applying for jobs is, for, is from your, your doctoral supervisor. And, you know, every, every application I sent in had a little asterisk at the bottom of the cover letter saying, you know, unfortunately, the reason why I can't provide a, a reference letter for my doctoral supervisor is, is no longer with us. So, um, you know, and then of course, you know, they're, they're in the best position mm-hmm. to sort of, you know, comment to you on your, on your research and, and, and also as a person, right. Cause you're with that person for, for four years. Um, but yeah, no, I, I certainly have had a, a wonderful yeah. network of colleagues. Um, I suppose I would say rally around me, so to speak, but no, we're certainly willing to, to, to lend a hand and, and offer, you know, letters of support and, uh, and things like that. So I mentioned working with, um, you know, Todd Lougheed and, and Mark Eyes and, and some other colleagues uh, as well at, at Western that were, mm-hmm. you know, that were willing to, to provide those letters of support. And but yeah, certainly it, it's, uh, and, and certainly grateful to, to all those people who, who stepped up and, and were so willing to help. But, you know, it, it doesn't, uh, like you said, it's not quite the same as your own doctoral supervisor for sure. It's, uh, yeah, if, if there's nothing else that comes out of this, podcast episode then uh, that in itself is 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 nice because i guess i I'm, i guess maybe i'm sure they know but um but it's not something that we as men and it comes back to the mental health thing uh often discuss um giving thanks to those people that have um that have stepped up in difficult times and helped us out so that's nice anyway i don't want to uh don't want to we, we're having an, a, 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 a laugh and a joke about your um naturalization into the irish team and I, i've brought the tone down somewhat uh so uh let's let's talk about the fact like so what changes would you make to the field of sports Ooh. psychology academic or applied <laughs> or both <laughs> Your choice, your choice. Obviously, you you work in both both spaces, so wh- whichever. Um, well, obviously, I think. I mean, this is certainly not nothing new and not not my call. But a lot of people have always talked about trying to merge the two a little bit closer, getting the the research and, and the practice to uh, you know to marry and, and to you know intertwine a little bit a little bit more uh, and to sort of collaborate, if you will, a little bit uh, a little bit more than uh, than they had in the past. Um, you know, we often see, you know, we still see a bit of a dichotomy between, you know, even when we look at conferences and societies of this is a very research focused conference, this is a very applied focused conference, and, you know, never the mm. two shall meet. And so, you know, ideally, you know, we should be trying to, uh, I think, have a little bit better integration there. Um, research should inform practice, and then, and then practice should give us ideas of what to research. Um, mm. uh, certainly in that a- aspect. Um, why, why do you think that's important? Yeah, well, I, I think it's just a, a broader push that we see um, in, in communicating research findings and, and knowledge translation, right? So, you know, we're doing a lot, you know, we're doing all this great work, but is it, is it getting to the front lines? Is it getting to the people who can benefit it from the most? Uh, you know, it's, you know, we publish it and, and it gets, you know, stored away in these academic journals, but you know who, who's 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 reading them? Who, who's who's benefiting from from the good work that we're doing and the knowledge that we're creating and generating and and, and our understanding? Um, so I think it's it, it's part of a push and, and broader um, uh, academia to to get our, our work out to the masses and, and to make it useful and, and and making sure it's you know it's being adopted. 
because um, otherwise, you know, I suppose what's what's the what's the broader point of doing it besides you know advancing knowledge, which is important. But we do want you also want to make some impact as well. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, it was a bit of I was playing devil's advocate a little bit there. I, I wholly agree um, with the point. But uh, yeah, I, I kind of. So how how do we do that? How do we how do we bridge this gap? Go on, Carl. It's on you. I know everyone's been trying to do this for the last two decades. But what what, what do you think we can yeah, do differently? Uh, I think I think we all we all sort of we all know ideally what should happen, but then we kind of always sort of revert back to our default in our, our comfortable positions, mm-hmm. right? So whether that's you know societies um, adapting, current societies adapting to what and changing the ways that they do things from what they traditionally did, or maybe new mm-hmm. societies forming with this being their main mandate, uh, you know, kind of that that theory practice. Um, Mm. gap uh, and trying to, to merge that together um, but I, but I think also you know we, we see a little bit of this in other areas as well of, of, of co-production so you know researchers and 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 practitioners and 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 the target populations being a part of an active agents in that process so it's being mm. informed they're they're actually part of the research process they're not just the the participants are the subjects anymore and and so i think yeah. you can learn a lot of that from that co-production uh research that, that that's going on and, and we start to see that in, in, in psychology and some of the other social sciences as well um yeah that, that could be one way to to start to to look at it in sport yeah i think it's um i think the co-production thing is is really interesting but i also think it's it's more around collaborative working as well um it's the, the like we all have contacts um within sporting environments be it youth sport through to elite sport um and i think we need to do a better job really to um to work together to, to do more meaningful research because if you are working with practitioners they often they don't really care about the bigger picture they're often only interested in influencing sports like um, I know you've worked with lots of teams uh, as have I um, in the sense of they don't really care about the broader community they're interested in themselves and how to improve their team their group their club whatever it may be um, it's how we That's frame right. that that question whilst also asking a question that can be um, assessed between groups as well as within right yeah and I, I think as researchers we're always we know some of we get caught up on what's uh, statistical significance but you know do we overlook practical significance and you know is it actually making an impact on the front lines whether or not that's statistically proven is it is there is it practically proven from from our from our experiences and so mm. uh and, and from the feedback that we're getting from from the people that are actually using or, or adopting these these techniques yeah i guess uh for for all of the the negatives of the the ref the research excellence framework in the uk the fact that they actually do focus on impact is uh is probably one saving grace uh from the whole process but even the way like i'm not going to go into the ref <laughs> that's a whole other podcast in itself isn't it it's <laughs> a whole other podcast and uh yeah okay kyle that's um that was interesting that was really good so um so thank you very much for taking the time to to have a, a chat today hopefully you enjoyed the experience and uh and yeah thanks very much for coming on yes a pl- pleasure as always john uh cheers for having me uh it, it, it was great uh, look forward to <laughs> to listening to it back and, and hearing some of your other guests as well 